Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Sergin Karim, is a diplomat with the soul of an artist, and he wants to become the next United Nations Secretary General. Karim is the former foreign minister of Macedonia and also served as the president of the UN General Assembly back in the mid-2000s. He's a self-described citizen of the world. He was born in Macedonia, but spent much of his formative years in Germany and has lived at various times all over the world. We discuss his unique upbringing, some of his academic work in development economics, and his experience during the dissolution of the former Yugoslavia. And towards the end of the conversation, we discuss his passion for art and why he so loves Andy Warhol. This conversation is part of my United Nations Secretary General Candidate Conversation Series. This is the third in the series, and there will be more to come, so stay tuned. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our previous episodes, subscribe on iTunes, or download the app. And, of course, you can use the contact button to get in touch with me. Send me your thoughts, your questions, your ideas for future episodes or people I should interview. And now here is Dr. Surgeon Karim. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My understanding of uh, this organization is uh, you are the captain of the boat. You have to hold the steering wheel stable position and to be fit for it you need a fit crew but the navigation is given uh, and the destination by the membership i I like the seafaring uh metaphor so so what is what's it like can you maybe just like take me inside the room where where, say you're meeting with the scandinavians or the egyptians or or, or any member state what's that conversation like that conversation is like uh, I tell them, listen, uh, guys, I uh, uh, have some ideas about the priorities of the United Nations. And uh, let me share it with you. Let me tell you that I believe that uh, counterterrorism must be very high on this agenda. On top of the whole agenda must be management reform. Why? Because, uh, uh, you know, if you have to uh, convince your neighbors that you're really the one, uh, then you have to clean up first your backyard and not to ask your members to do it, uh, your neighbors to do it, sorry. Uh, so your own example is always the best and most convincing one. So I think that the Secretary General must uh, uh, lead this uh very important exercise and show his first leadership uh, performance in uh, 
giving concrete results in the area of management reform, setting up targets, which include better geographical representation on the top uh, appointments uh, in the organization, and above all, gender. Mm -hmm. You know, we are talking about gender equality, and that's more lip service than anything else, because how can we uh, speak about gender equality knowing that 72 uh, percent of the highest appointments in the UN Secretariat are men and only 28 women. And what I want to do is to set up a concrete target during my term in office and uh, tell them that it's going to be 60-40 and even I'll try and do my best to get it to 50-50 uh, providing member states will cooperate because you can't do it on your own. It's not your uh, private shop so that you can decorate it the way you want. You need the, uh, the membership to support you, to give you more women as candidates and uh, to offer um, a lot of candidates. And I think that's easy because half of the population of the earth is female. Yeah, in, in those hearings last week, it seemed that the top priorities for a lot of member states were equitable geographic distribution and more gender equality and top appointments. Uh, with a good reason. But uh, what matters is uh, to implement that. And uh, I'm a result-oriented man, uh, not at least because I was in the private sector so many years and I have been the CEO of a company which had 12,000 people in seven countries, a multinational one. So I know how to do it and what does it mean, you know. So I'm not talking theory, I'm talking <laughs> as a man from practice. So so let's learn a little bit more about you and, and, and your background. So where are you from? Where were you born? I was born in Skopje. Skopje is the capital of uh, Macedonia and Skopje is the city where Mother Teresa was born. Ah, okay. So, uh, and uh, we, Skopje is one of the oldest cities in the world. Skopje has been part of seven entities, amazingly, you know, of the Roman Empire, of the Byzantine Empire, of the Ottoman Empire, of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, of Tito's Yugoslavia. It's an independent country now, Macedonia. Uh, so, uh, of uh, the ancient Greek uh, Empire of Alexander, you know, so it's uh, actually a city which epitomizes the whole history of civilization and that's probably something in my genes <laughs> so when you're the, generating me to do uh, these kind of missions like the UN so when you were born did did the I suppose Mother Teresa was probably like in her 30s was she uh, like a known entity at that point no she was then uh, I think uh, let's say yeah uh, uh, on her her way, no later a bit later. I was born in forty eight. A bit later, she went to India. Um, you know, so and uh, she left Skopje, and she became well known after she has uh, started her work and her mission in India. But uh, as I said, uh, growing up in Skopje, I did not uh, spend my life there. Mm -hmm. I can tell you a very interesting, intriguing fact about me, also for your audience. I'm a citizen of the world. I have lived in 11 cities so far. I have lived in Istanbul. 
I've lived in Munich, I've lived in Paris, I've lived in Berlin, I've lived in Vienna, I've lived in New York, and a few other cities. So I'm a real citizen of the world. Um, so uh, what kind of family were you born into? What did your parents do? Well, my father was one of the commanders of the Liberation Army of Macedonia in the Second World War. And uh, he was riding a white horse, liberating his hometown, Stip, which is in the eastern part of Macedonia, and shocked his own father because <laughs> my grandfather was not a fan and supporter of the partisans, you know, and their liberation army. So it was rather, rather conservative. But my father surprised them all, and with 24 years, he well, he was part of this liberation movement, which liberated Macedonia from the fascists in the Second World War, from the Germans, from the Italian and Bulgarian occupation. Yeah, it was like a, a three-part, right? It was the Italians and, and the Bulgarians occupied uh, Macedonia during World yeah, War II. Yeah, and the Germans also partly, yeah, right. And so was, was your father a well-known figure because of that? Well, uh, well known in terms that he was, you know, uh, chairman of the organization of the war veterans, and uh, but otherwise he was uh, more in the business world. He he was the establisher of the first foreign trade uh, uh, enterprise in Macedonia, and he decided when I was 12 years old to go to Germany to learn about his uh, enemies in the Second World War. And uh, so I spent my childhood in Germany due to my father's very, very interesting way of regarding people and things. He didn't uh, follow stereotypes. He thought that German people are good people and that we should learn about German culture, my sister and I. So we spent four years there and he put me in a Catholic school, although my father is of Muslim origin and my mother is a Christian. And was Christian there, both that, unfortunately. But I was raised in a Catholic school within the Catholic uh, Church, and uh, the Pope, Benedict XVI, he was the Archbishop of the Diocese where I used to go to school. Did you ever have the chance to meet uh, the Pope? Did he ever come no, back? No, no? Not, only, not only to meet him, I invited him as President of the General Assembly to speak in the United Nations. <laughs> uh, so it was a rendezvous. There you go. A few years. after, yeah, thirty-four years later, after going to yeah. his school, you you, you met him. Uh, yeah. that's 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 a funny that's a funny story. So, but so the reason your dad took you to Germany was simply right. that he wanted a more deeper cultural understanding of the German people. There wasn't like a business interest that took him there. No, no, of course there was a business interest, but the business interest was uh, his own interest, but. Uh, he didn't involve me and my sister as kids into business affairs. He rather uh, sent us to schools to learn about the Germany, German people, the German language. And uh, I've spent 16 years in my life later in Germany in various capacities, among others, as ambassador of Macedonia to Germany, seven years as uh, CEO of one of the largest media companies in Europe, VATS Media Group from Essen. And uh, so, as I said, I have made quite an experience so there. Where did you go to, uh, to university? To university uh, in Belgrade. 
I graduated from the Faculty of Economics in Belgrade. What drew you to economics? Why were you? Uh, why did you want to I'm study that? I'm a professor. That? I'm a professor of international economics. I've written uh, ten books mm-hmm. on international economics and international politics so far. But I back to, back I when used you were to teach in yeah. New York, yeah. I used to teach in the New York University. I used to teach in the University of Hamburg and the University of Belgrade. That is one of the hats I was wearing during my career. But 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 back when you were in your late teens and early twenties, what drew you to the idea of economics? Like, why were you interested in that to study? Well, uh, to be honest with you, I wanted to study architecture and philosophy. <laughs> That's my soul. That's how I am. I'm, I'm uh, making fo- photographies nowadays. I'm writing poems. I have written uh, two books of poems. I'm going to have an exhibition on photographies made with BlackBerry. Uh, camera with a BlackBerry uh, cell phone, and uh, that's my soul. But my parents, they were very pragmatic. They said to me, "If you graduate philosophy, architecture, you will hardly find a job. So make sure that you study economics and find a good job." And so I was then hired uh, in the University of Belgrade as assistant, and then assistant professor, and then I became professor. So what kind of, uh, like, what specific in the realm of economics did you study? What was uh, your, like, academic economics, interest? International economics. Did well, you do a PhD? What was your PhD on? My PhD, uh, it will uh, surprise you, was uh, an inquiry uh, and research of uh, economic cooperation among developing countries as a factor in world economy. Huh. Like what? What? That's what did funny. you study? To, and like, that brought me. That brought me to the. That brought me to the so-called third world. You know, this is how I started to deal with the developing countries and their problems and their development philosophies and uh, patterns and uh, the cooperation between the north and the south, starting with Lester Pearson's partners in development. At that time, Lester Pearson was uh, president of the World Bank. So. This is how I uh, visited that part of the world and made my inquiries. Lester Pearson is, of course, the, the Canadian diplomat, famous for... Uh, yeah, and, and, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and Prime Minister of Canada. And Prime Minister, yeah. 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 Um, so you studied basically like the econo- economies of the developing world and how they cooperated with each other. Were there any like specific economies that you studied at the time? Which I assume was probably like in the like 1960s, 70s? Yeah, it was uh, in the end of the 70s, uh, and I did. Uh, I studied especially this tripartite cooperation between Yugoslavia, Egypt, and India, trying to figure out to what extent does it make sense, does it fit into the uh, patterns of their own development, and uh, is it realistic to believe that... Uh, 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 promoting uh, economic cooperation among developing countries will actually uh, strengthen uh, their role and uh, create synergies for them. But I realized that uh, it could be rather and more an autarkic concept if they go on that way. They have to cooperate. You have to cooperate across the globe. You know, you have to develop foreign trade in all directions and spe- specifically with those economies where you have comparative advantages. Um, so did you then uh, want to become an academic and kind of live your life in, in academia? No, to be honest with you, uh, during my uh, academic uh, career, I felt somehow bored. 
It well, you got the soul enough. of an artist, you said. It wasn't, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't enough dynamic for me, and it did not match with my curious nature, uh, all my expectations. Uh, I ex- uh, accepted the offer of the foreign minister of Yugoslavia in 1983, Mr. Lazar Moisov, who used to be president of the General Assembly 77-78, and a famous diplomat then worldwide, he invited me to become his advisor on UNCTAD. You know UNCTAD, this uh, UN conference on uh, trade and development. And that was my first appointment, actually, 33 years ago in multilateral diplomacy. Since then, I fell in love with multilateral diplomacy, and I'm a passionate uh, actor in in this area, and I believe uh, firmly that multilateral diplomacy is the only alternative to war and courage in this world. So when you were uh, a young diplomat uh, working at UNCTAD, the UN Conference on Trade and Development, um, what sort of, I mean, do you have any specific experiences that you recall uh, that crystallized in you this this understanding of multilateral diplomacy and and made you really like it? Was there any like one or two things that happened during that experience that that made you really like it? Sure. Yeah, sure. First of all, uh, I was aware that developing countries uh, established UNCTAD believing that it's going to be the alternative for GATT. You know, at that Yeah, time, the global it, agreement on trades and tariffs, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And general, not global. Global. global right. The general agreement. Sorry, I have to correct you. But no, no, no. That's, yeah, you, no, you're the expert. <laughs> I beg your pardon and I apologize, but I have to do it. Because Absolutely. Because being a professor, you always have this habit <laughs> Absolutely. to correct others. But sometimes I have to correct even myself. Hey, no, no offense taken. We like to be accurate here. So, so okay. So, what were you doing? General, yeah. general uh, agreement on tariffs and trades, and no, uh, and so they believe that that should be the alternative for it. But it turned out, and practice has shown, and I'm glad that it happened that way. That we need a unique uh, uh, world trade organization, so everybody is now on board there, and everybody is uh, negotiating within the world trade organization, and. Uh, uh, Ultimately, we have to be all realistic. We live in a globalized world, although we are not sharing the same values yet. And uh, this is this is one of my missions for all my life. I believe in that, that the world uh, deserves better. We deserve to live in a better world, and therefore I will fight all my life as long as I live to have uh, uh, accepted the basic values for everyone on this globe and uh, earth based on a human-centered development because the individual is an individual. It doesn't matter whether he or she is Chinese, Russian, American, Macedonian, Greek, uh, African, South American, whatever. I, I guess from from a personal level, though, um, was there any kind of personal experience that happened to you or that you participated in during your first foray into multilateral diplomacy that made you realize this is something that you wanted to spend your career doing? Yes, absolutely. Uh, what I found there, it's an uh, amazing combination of, you know, uh, unique passion for that. You need to believe. A passion is about believing something. You know, and if you don't believe in an undertaking, you will never be successful. 
it doesn't matter whether do, you do something in business or in academia or in diplomacy, in politics and so. And I found out that there, meeting people, talking to people, persuading them about what is, uh, you know, required, uh, then bridging gaps. That's my favorite one. And uh, creating balances, you know. This world in which we live is uh, stretched between, uh, you know, two uh, approaches. The one is the well-known, the old pattern approach of balance of power, and the new one, the coming one, the future one, is the balance of uh, interest. And so the world is stretched between the two. In one leg, we are uh, following the balance of power logic. In another leg, the balance of interest. And uh, definitely for world peace and uh, security, it is much better to rely on this uh, approach based on balance of uh, interest. And therefore, as I said, I was all my life engaged in that. As I said, narrowing gaps and overbridging divisions. Um, so uh, how long did you spend then at, at UNCTAD in, in this forum? Oh, only one year. Only one year. And then I went to the United States uh, for a study visit. That was my first touch and uh, contact with the United States. And Where? I, found, I found out that uh, the, the United States is a great nation and in you know, many areas, and especially academic, you know, and I uh, visited many universities. I studied a lot uh, about this country. And uh, Where did you go to I in the United States? I fell in love with New York. You New went York. to New York? Yeah. yeah, I went to New York, and I fell in love in New York, and I used I lived in New York since then three times. Wait, now, did different, you, in you, three different capacities. You said you fell in love in New York or with no, New York with or New York. both? No, okay. no, not okay. in New York. I fell in love not uh, <laughs> in New York, but with New York. Uh, when I fell in love, that was uh, not in New York. That was in Paris with my wife. And uh, she's a Canadian. She used to live in Toronto. And we got married then in Toronto in the city hall of Toronto. That's that's the love story. But the New York is something else. New York is uh, my love in terms of the cities. Uh, and I, as I said, I lived so far in 11 cities and three times in New York. And uh, New York is amazing. Um, amazing and unique. Was it difficult, I guess, uh, being a, an official from a, a communist country uh, to get like a visa, to get to, to come and study at the United States at, at that time? Uh, well, uh, you know, the United States of America and Yugoslavia, they had very sound and uh, very, very, I would say, solid uh, and founded a relationship as states. And the Yugoslavs were the only ones who had passports who would take them all across the globe from Germany and France and UK to the United States. Yugoslavia was different. It wasn't locked and uh, behind the Iron Curtain as all the others in Eastern Europe. So the Yugoslav passport was uh, then one of the most popular passports mm. in the world, and all the smugglers and falsificators of the world were working on uh, uh, producing uh, fake copies of Yugoslav. <laughs> I did not know that. That's, that's really oh, interesting. Yes. Uh, ask the authorities in the United States how many they, 
they captured here, you know, <laughs> of the fake <laughs> thousands. Um, no. So I'd love to learn um, a bit about what your experience, your personal experience was during 1991 and, and the dissolution of, of Yugoslavia. What were you doing professionally at the time and, and where were you living? I was living then in Belgrade. I was uh, uh, in the federal government of Yugoslavia in the last one. Mm-hmm. I was vice minister of foreign affairs in charge of relations with the European Union, United States. And uh, so I had a very important position in the last government of Yugoslavia. And as such, uh, of course, uh, I felt responsible for what has happened there. Our concept was a peaceful settlement of the conflicts, which were obvious, but mm-hmm. it didn't work. Others prevailed and they made these horrible atrocities and wars over there. And uh, I was so frustrated by these uh, developments. I went to Paris and I worked for a private company. That was my first experience with the private sector. Mm-hmm. And but, I, earned, I earned my first money, serious money in my life then, uh, during these two years in Paris. Um, uh, when did you know, or when did you have an intuition that things were, were going to fall apart? Were you still uh, the vice minister of foreign affairs yes, when yes, you realized? Absolutely. Was there a I, moment? I, I, no, I felt in 1990. Yeah. I felt in 1990, uh, it was uh, more than one year before it happened because I saw that the regime of Milosevic was so uh, stubborn and uh, one-sided and decisive to reshape the country in a way which was totally unacceptable for the others, so that there was no way to avoid the confrontation, and they were going uh, uh, in this direction. And uh, I knew that then the others will not accept that, because uh, Tito did very well in creating a federation which was pretty loose, flexible, and uh, kept the balance among uh, all the republics. Yugoslavia was always, you know, a composition of six republics. And this is why decomposed itself into six states later. And now, recently, Kosovo becoming the seven. I, I suppose you probably had the opportunities throughout your career to, to actually meet Milosevic. Um, yes. Do, do you remember your, your, your first meeting with him and what that was like? Oh, you know, my first meeting with him was uh, when I was 20 years old and he was like 27, 28. I think he was something like seven, six, seven years older than me. And that was in the university. We had a conference of the University of Belgrade. He was very quiet, you know, and, and, and very, I would say, uh, cautious. Then he didn't show any sort of aggression, which we have faced later, uh, and self. And I think that he was very much under influence of his wife. She, she was very influential. She. I think she was the only person on earth who could change his mind and who could conduct his behavior because she was then, I met her as well, she was very outspoken, very uh, direct, very uh, active, very aggressive, very different uh, than him. But later he showed a completely different face. We met again when he was the general manager of the largest bank in Belgrade. And I was one of the 
experts, being professor of economics and advisor of the board of the bank. And uh, then he showed some skills uh, concerning banking, business, and so on. People thought he might uh, become a, a very Western, pro-oriented, modern businessman. But uh, they they had obviously the wrong assessment. He became what we know, and uh, basically like a yeah. a criminal mastermind. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. When do you remember? Like the last time you saw him face to face? The last time I saw him was when he didn't refuse to uh, uh, he didn't refuse to sign the appointment of uh, Stipe Message from Croatia, who used to be vice president of the Yugoslav Federation and should be upgraded according to the rotation principle into the president of the federation, because they rotated on a yearly basis. And he made such a funny thing there. He was very ignorant, arrogant. He didn't want to sign in it. The last argument he made was, I don't have a pen. <laughs> and I then can't... I borrowed him my pen. I, I took my pen out of my jacket and said, here is the pen. Sign. And he signed. Uh, formally letting the, the, the Croatian guy become the president. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. That was the last time. And uh, it was the last one. He was the last one. The message was the last one because he was from 1990 to 91 and mm -hmm. then 91, the country <laughs> fell apart and that, that was it. And so how do you think that, so Macedonia sort of escaped much of the violence, right? It was, it was the only real peaceful or nonviolent uh, a republic or, or situation to, to, to secede. Why do yeah. you think that that was the case uh, for Macedonia as opposed to the other republics? I'll tell you why. Because uh, uh, the first president of Macedonia uh, was a person, Mr. Gligorov. He was a person who had a long experience in the federation. So he knew very well how does the federation function, what are the strong sides, what are the weak sides, what are the tricky questions. So he did not involve himself into these uh, conflicts uh, 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 between Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, and the others. A and B, we were well prepared. Uh, uh, you know, uh, there was a strong uh, national movement in Macedonia uh, uh, called Vemero, uh, which uh, was uh, uh, creating a situation to control uh, the situation in the country, to get rid of the army and its control, and to get uh, rid of the federal police and its control. And that was uh, decisive, and the agreement with the army, with the Yugoslav army, to ask them to leave the country with all their equip equipment, everything, and uh, guaranteeing at the same time that we are not going to expropriate their private property. And we are not going to jeopardize their families. And, and that was a wise move. So they left the barracks. They took everything with them, including the chargers, you know, in the barracks for the electricity <laughs> and, uh, and the equipment. And we couldn't care less. We said, go. That's what counts. We don't want you anymore. And we made our referendum on independence on September 8th. Uh, in 91, and this is how Macedonia became independent in a peaceful way, uh, which is highly appreciated, you know, in, in the recent history of that part of Europe. Uh, but but you mentioned earlier that, that as Yugoslavia was dis dissolving, you got fed up and, and you went left for the private sector in, in Paris. 
Um, what what sort of company did you start? I mean, you seem to have very little experience in the private sector. I mean, obviously, you're a, a, a economics professor. You, you, you sort of know a thing or two, I would imagine, about uh, economic theory. What sort of job did you accept in the private no, but, sector? But I'll tell you how it happened. You know, I don't believe in the theory that things happen by chance. Nothing happens by chance. Uh, actually, I was Minister of Foreign Trade of Macedonia from 1986 to 1988. And being Minister of Foreign Trade of Macedonia as one of the federal republics in Yugoslavia, I had the uh, authority to issue permissions for foreign companies to work in Macedonia, although still being within the socialist system, the old system. And this company asked for permission to register in Macedonia and was a company on uh, petrochemicals and chemicals, you know. And uh, so I issued for them this uh, permission, and they remembered that. And uh, when I came in 1992 and asked them for a job there, they, they gave me the job. They made me vice, vice president of the company in charge of international relations because they knew about my experience. They knew that I have... Uh, relations everywhere and for such a company it was very important to sell its petrochemicals and chemicals all over the place and that's what i did in paris in la defense and and you said um was the first time you had made any real money what was it like sort of suddenly having some money absolutely when yugoslavia fell apart i realized that i have only three thousand deutschmarks in my pocket uh, and i have family and with three thousand deutschmarks you can't begin a lot you know it's not quite an undertaking and so I, I had to go and I went to this company and uh, I, I had a very good salary there and I was happy um, with that, at least with that. So when did you return to Macedonia then to join uh, the government? Uh, the beginning of 94, the president of Macedonia asked me, uh, he talked to the president of my company and uh, asked him to give me the permission to talk to him because I was under contract, of course, and you have to abide to your contract. And he offered me the job of ambassador of Macedonia to Germany. And I accepted that because I was supposed to be anyway the ambassador of Yugoslavia to Germany. And if <laughs> Yugoslavia wouldn't fall apart, I would have been the ambassador of Yugoslavia 92 to 96. So that's how it happens. And so what were some of your priorities then as, as uh, Macedonian ambassador to Germany? To put Macedonia on the map, you know, Germans uh, did not have a clue at all what is Macedonia about and who is Macedonia because they cooperated with Yugoslavia, you know, mm-hmm. so, and uh, people tend to uh, always uh, mix Macedonia and Montenegro, even in the United States, when I was ambassador here and permanent representative of Macedonia to the United Nations, many friends in New York, uh, musicians and other artistic people with whom I used to hang out, they would call me the ambassador of Montenegro. <laughs> oh, Macedonia, no. <laughs> but that's, we are used to it. <laughs> so what, what sort of tricks did you hurt. use? We are not We are not offended. What sort of strategies or tricks did you use to then introduce Macedonia to the public, to the German well, public or I'll, German I'll, people? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. First, uh, work with the media. I had yearly 60 to 90 interviews and interventions with the media be it radio stations, be it TV, or... No podcast back then, though. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> okay, I, yes used, yeah, I used to go to talk about Macedonia. Yeah. Uh, 
and especially in times of crisis, you know, like the Kosovo crisis, like other uh, uh, conflicts in the Balkans, you know. And uh, then uh, I made sure that I meet two to three thousand people a year. So I had a network of, the, of about three thousand people when I left after seven years in Germany. Uh, in various areas, starting, you know, I organized exhibitions for my country there to show them that we are good in music and in uh, paintings and uh, that the Balkan people are not only warriors, but they can be very good artists and very uh, peaceful and nice people. <laughs> I organized for all the ministers of my government visits to visit their counterparts in Germany, to establish cooperation, to sign a lot of agreements between Germany and Macedonia uh, uh, once Macedonia was a new country, you know, and you have to make sure that you have double taxation avoidance mm -hmm. agreements, that you have uh, transport agreements, the use of airports, taxis and so on. Everything, you know, it's yeah. a hard work, it's a big work. And last but not least, I cooperated with the Germans on the crisis management in the Balkans. So they realized that, that they can rely on me and not only them, also other important countries. And they proposed me then to become the deputy coordinator of the Stability Pact for Southeastern Europe, which was formed by President Clinton, Chancellor Schroeder, President Chirac, uh, Prime Minister Blair and others in uh yeah, July the, 99 the, the contact group right yeah right um we just have a couple minutes left but i i really i have to ask you about your photography uh yeah. your your you mentioned earlier um that you are having exhibition of photographs you took on your blackberry right can you explain that like what i'm enlarging them no photography is for me uh, 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 a moment you need the inspiration in a very specific moment uh, viewing something, gazing at something, catch the moment and catch the light. And you have wonderful photography and I have uh, uh, 60 photographies which I have enlarged and uh, uh, framed and they will be exhibited in a wonderful gallery in Opatia which is on the Croatian Adriatic coast and the exhibition will be opened by the mayor of Opatia and it's a very important tourist spot in Europe, this place. And uh, the exhibition will be opened on July 20th, and it will last two weeks. And, 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 and these are just... Every photography has its history, you no know, an explanation. So what, what are some of the things that you, that you took a picture of using your, your mobile phone, I suppose? Yes, yes. I'm using only my, my, my cell phone, my mobile phone, the, the BlackBerry one. And uh, I'm making the pictures simply with them and enlarging them. So this, these are moments, you know. For instance, I was in Ottawa uh, yesterday meeting the leadership of Canada. Uh, and uh, the day before on Sunday when I arrived, I arrived at sunset and I made a wonderful picture of Ottawa during sunset. Okay, so of nature scenes. Yeah, okay. of, of the horizon, yeah. And that's how it is. And I have many pictures of New York, New Delhi, Tokyo, uh, Rome, Paris, London, Moscow, Beijing, the whole world, Africa, Addis Ababa. I made also a wonderful picture of Andy Warhol, who is my uh, role model. You know, so you met and Andy Warhol? I, no, I saw the picture somewhere. Oh, you know, okay, yeah. And I, 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 I made a photo of it. 
and and I I I I named it his masters, his masters photography. You know, uh, because every photography has its own title. What what inspires you about Andy Warhol? Yeah, because I, I've always adored the way he was. Uh, uh, regarding arts, you know, and paintings. I, I'm obsessed with paintings. I visited almost all the museums of the world and galleries, you know, uh, watching the Renaissance paintings, you know. I'm obsessed by Leonardo da Vinci and then by the sculptures of uh, Michelangelo all the way to Picasso. So, uh, you know, uh, that's the world I like. And then in Germany, when I was in Baden-Baden, I was walking the park and then I saw a wonderful oak, the so-called German oak, and it was in fall and it has all the colors on its uh, leaves. So I made a f- wonderful photo of the German oak and it will be part of this exhibition. Uh, well, Dr. Krim, thank you so much. I, I love you. you know, it's it's the, the, the diplomat with the soul of an artist, as you said at the start. Thank you so much for your time, for speaking with me. Uh, anything else? Any, any final thoughts? Anything else you want to you leave this with? Well, uh, I don't think so. I think you were guiding the conversation <laughs> in a wonderful way. Uh, I thank you for that. And, uh, of course, uh, I'm always ready to continue our conversation uh, whatever the subject is, you know, media are for me a very important stakeholder together with academia, with private sector, parliamentarians, and uh, civil society for the United Nations. Therefore, I regard our conversation today as part of that. Uh, Well, thank you very much, and and best of luck to you, sir. Thank you very much, Mark, and I wish you also all the best. All right. That was a lot of fun. As I mentioned, there are more of these to come. So stay tuned, sit tight, and we'll bring you more of these conversations with the women and men who want to become the next United Nations Secretary General. And at time of recording, there are nine declared candidates. We're a third of the way there unless more people declare their candidacy. So stay tuned. I will see you. Bye.